You're listening to the Eastside Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This sermon was recently preached at our church. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com. Now, enjoy today's sermon. Thank you, Aaron. I'm glad he's faithful. And I think about that every time I play the piano. God, thank you for being faithful and uh, grateful for that truth this morning. And it uh, goes right along, actually, with what, what we'll be looking at in Genesis chapter 12 today. Genesis chapter 12 is where we're going to be in our Bibles, and we'll look at it here in just a moment. Uh, when I think about Abram, um, I think about a man of great faith. And we, we're studying his life right now because we're going through a series in the book of Genesis. Abram left his home, he left his family. Uh, He left his life preferences, as we heard last week, because he believed in the one true living God. He chose God's promises over his preferences. What a testimony of faith to break all the pagan trends of those living around him and and deny those gods and follow Jehovah. And so he left it uh, to head toward a country that God even hadn't showed him yet. And not only had never been there, but God, when God said, I want you to get, get you up out of your kindred and your country and go to a place I'm going to show you, he didn't even know where he was going. That's what Abram is. Uh, it, that's the, the, the situation Abram is in. But I love the fact that when he got there, we saw this last week, when he got to this heathen land, uh, he came to this place and the Canaanites were there and they did not worship his God. And yet when Abram got to where he was going, he built an altar and he built another one, and he built even another one. And, and he chose, instead of focusing on all the preferences that he had given up, he chose to focus on the promises that God had made him. And I'm thankful for that example. And you might think, well, Abram is where he's supposed to be. He's given up all of his preferences. He's living in the land of promise. And you might think, well, that's it. Mission accomplished. Faith established. Abram has it all figured out. But to that I say this morning, not so fast. Because Abram is a lot... By the way, I hope you're awake this morning, by the way. I know it's, it's snowy and you came in, things are a little different. Can you, could, you be, could you be responsive this morning? Okay, help me out here today. Um, we're, we're about to see one of the low points of Abram's journey of faith. And some, in some ways, when I read stories like this, I have to believe that God inspired the Bible. Because if it was a man coming up with these things, you might gloss over all the negative pieces of a person's life. And yet God includes even the, the episodes in the lives of the great men of the faith. And I think he does it for a good reason, especially because it helps us to see that we're not the only ones at times that struggle with having faith. And it's a help to us to see these things. And so if you're in Genesis chapter 12, let's stand and we'll read beginning in verse 10 this morning. Even when we find ourselves like Abram in a good place, I'm just telling you, failure isn't far away if you're not careful. Look at Genesis chapter 12, verse 10. And it says, And there was a famine in the land. And Abram went down into Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was grievous in the land. And it came to pass, when he was come near to enter into Egypt, that he said unto Sarai his wife, Behold now, 
I know that thou art a fair woman to look upon. Therefore it shall come to pass when the Egyptians shall see thee that they shall say, this is his wife and they will kill me, but they will save thee alive. Say, I pray thee, that thou, thou art my sister, that it may be well with me for thy sake and my soul shall live because of thee. And it came to pass that when Abram was come into Egypt, the Egyptians beheld the woman that she was very fair. The princes also of Pharaoh saw her and commended her before Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And he entreated Abram well for her sake, and he had sheep and oxen and he asses and men servants and maid servants and she asses and camels. And the Lord plagued Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. And Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this that thou hast done unto me? Why didst thou not tell me that she was thy wife? Why sayest thou, She is my sister? So I might have taken her to me to wife. Now therefore, behold thy wife, take her and go thy way. And Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they sent him away and his wife and all that he had. Now, this is a pretty big deal. This wasn't just Pharaoh accidentally picking up Abram's coat and putting it on. It's like, oh, I'm sorry, I got the wrong one. No, he, he, he says, why didn't you tell me? And what's interesting to me is that Pharaoh seems the one to be thinking clearly. And yet God's man, Abram, a man of faith, isn't seeing the situation very well. But look at verse 1 of the next chapter, and I want to see his response, which is great. It says, And Abram went up out of Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and lot with him into, his, into the south. And Abram was very rich in cattle, in silver, and in gold. And he went on his journeys from the south, even to Bethel, under the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Hai, under the place of the altar which he had made there at the first. And there Abram called on the name of the Lord. Seems like he comes back around to where he's supposed to be, but not without a failure in the middle. And I'm calling this this morning, Famines, Fails, and Faith. We don't choose the famines, but we do choose our response to the famines. And our famine responses are either flee in fear or face it with faith. And our response usually comes down to how we view the famine that we're facing. Let's pray and ask God for his help this morning. Father, I pray that you'd help me. And Lord, you know there are times I stand in this pulpit and I do, I do tremble at the thought. And God, I pray that you would help, help our, us, all of us, our folks, to be in tune this morning. Not just to help me, but but because I think this is a truth that could really help many of us at this time. And that we're facing famines. There are some in here who are facing things I, I don't even know about, but the, the ones that I do know about, God, I, I think if they don't view this accurately, they may miss it. And God, I pray that you'd help our view of the famine to determine whether we stand with faith or we flee in fear. God, help us to respond correctly. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. <clears throat> One event in American history that has always fascinated me is the Great Dust Bowl of the 1930s. 
And uh, most of us are familiar with that period of time. I, I know the Dust Bowl came through, even came through South Dakota and affected even our own state right here. But most of us are familiar with the period of time in which a great drought resulted in massive dust storms throughout the, the central plains that actually blew all the way to the east coast. Uh, weather patterns obviously impacted that, but there were uh, other factors at work that caused the Great Dust Bowl. There were government acts that encouraged massive influxes of new farming and, and often inexperienced farmers across the Great Plains. And one other thing that I, I hadn't really known much about before, but in reading some of it this week, is they were driven by a superstition that said rain follows the plow. I don't know if you've ever heard that before, but it was a superstition there in the mid-1800s and late-1800s into the 1900s before the Dust Bowl. They said that the rain follows the plow. And they believed that the more that they farmed, the more they tilled and the more they planted, the more effort that they put in would impact the weather and actually change the climate of the semi-arid Great Plains region and make, the, make this region actually more permanently conducive to farming. And we might think, well, that sounds a little bit silly, but it was a widely accepted belief at that point. From immigrants to scientists, they believed that the rain follows the plow. And part of the reason they had that belief was the weather pattern during that, that actual expansion. It was a very wet period of time. And so as they would come and they would expand and, and they would create farms and start working the land, um, it was raining and it was wet and they were getting lots of moisture. And so it convinced them even more that rain follows the plow. The problem was, as most of us know that, that understand a little bit about that time, they were plowing up millions of acres of the native grassland in the region to plant these crops. And without the deep-rooted prairie grasses to hold the soil together, once it got dry again and once the wind started to blow, all of that soil began to blow away. I mean, I read this week that Chicago itself had, had what they estimate to be 12 million um, pounds or 12 million pounds of soil dumped into the city. I don't know how they measured that. But, but they say that's how much dust was blowing east. And not only that, the dust made its way all the way to the east coast. There were those that say that the, that the Statue of Liberty and the U.S. Capitol building were actually enshrouded and hidden by dust when it was at its peak. The drought, the Great Depression, and the Dust Bowl, they all converged around the same time to mark a dark period in our country's history. And the reason that that interests me specifically is because my grandmother and my wife's grandmother, this is a little tidbit of, of trivia, both of our grandmothers were children in Oklahoma at that time, and both of our grandmothers got into a car with their family and their belongings, and they both migrated to California at the same time. Uh, my, my family left from southeast Oklahoma and went to California. We're out there for just a year or two, not very long, before they left and came back and, and settled there in the state of Texas. My wife's family, though, they, they migrated to California. Her grandmother did, and they actually stayed. Her family is still there in California. So pray for them. They're still in California. 
And, you know, so if you ever thought, well, there's something weird about the Jets, well, we have some oaky roots, okay? So forgive us for it. You know, we could talk about the Dust Bowl, and we could talk about the Great Depression at length. It, it interests me, and I, mean, I read some of what um, her grandmother went through um, living in the shanty towns, in the tent villages, as they would, as they would migrate and work and try to find more, more work. And, and she actually, her grandmother, I, if I remember right, was saved because somebody was going into the shanty towns and knocking on the tent flaps. And witnessing to those, those folks there inside the tents. I mean, that's just an, an amazing thought. And there's a lot we could talk about this morning, but the, 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 the focus, the, the quote that comes to my mind, I couldn't get out of it this week, was rain follows the plow. You see, the human basis for that thought process and that idea is this. If you work hard and you do right and you do all the things that you're supposed to do, good things are going to happen to you. And we think, well, that's the way life works. If I'm plowing, rain's going to come. If I'm where I'm supposed to be, I'm going to be blessed. If I'm doing what I ought to do, things are going to be good. And that certainly can be true. And we've all experienced that. If you do right and you live right and you work hard and you take care of the things you're supposed to, plenty of times that results in good coming back to you. And God blesses us for doing the right things. But I'm here to tell you this morning to be an encouragement. That's not always the case. It's not always true that you plow and you work and you work your fingers to the bone and you do all you're supposed to do and yet and, and it's not always the case that that turns into something good. Sometimes you can plow all you want to and you can follow God all you want to and you can be in the place you're supposed to be and it doesn't quite turn out the way that you thought it should. See, Abram is the central figure in this story and he's been plowing. I mean, he left... Or the Chaldees, and he left his family, and he left his gods, and he, he, he left all of those things, and he moved to a place he had never been to. He was doing what he ought to. He was where he should have been. He followed God, and he left his old life, and when he got to Canaan, he built altars. His was a life of worship. If there's anybody that we could say was plowing, it's Abram. He was in the land of promise. He was where he was supposed to be. But it didn't prevent a famine. See, famine can happen to any of us. Famine can happen to any of us. Look at verse 10. And there was a famine in the land. See, this is a bit of a head scratcher. You know, he, Abram was where God had sent him. He was in the right place and he was worshiping. He was building altars everywhere he went. He was actively seeking God. So why in the world is there a famine? See, none of us expect a famine when we get to the land of promise. None of, of, of us expect, if we're obeying God, that it's going to just dry up. But friend, I'm just telling you this morning, rain doesn't always follow the plow. And just because you're doing what you ought to, where you ought to, that in no way exempts you from trouble. And I wish it wasn't the, wasn't the case, but even godly people have trouble. Even godly people get sick. Even godly people have financial difficulties. And even the godly following God, even they lose their jobs sometimes. Even they lose their loved ones sometimes. And this is the hard part of life when expectations are unmet. You know, you move into a new area, a new phase of life, and it seems so promising. And it's just not what you thought it was going to be. You know, you're saying, but God, I'm following God. He is obligated to bless me. And when it doesn't turn out that way, you're kind of left scratching your head sometimes, aren't you? 
And I'm not comparing this to true trials, but my daughter Olivia is going through some of that this year. You know, she's in college, and we told her before she went to college, I said, you know, if you want to wait a year, please wait a year, don't leave us. If you're going to want to wait a year, it's not going to be the same. You're going to get on campus, you're going to be wearing masks, you know, you're, and you're going to be social distancing, and they're going to be doing all these things to try to, it's just not going to feel the same if you want to wait. She was convinced, and I know, she, I know the Lord was leading her to go. You know, she gets there, they have a major ice storm in October, I mean, a fluke ice storm, and they're without power for over a week in their dorms. Okay? This semester, she gets back, and a couple of weeks ago, um, she got stuck in, in Stillwater saying at some friends over the weekend that a major, you know, when we had the cold snap here, it was even cold in Oklahoma, okay? Not quite as cold as South Dakota, but it was cold there too. And they lost power on campus, and a sprinkler pipe busted in her dorm and flooded her dorm. She was stuck in Stillwater. All of her stuff, everything she owned, got completely soaking wet. So other people had to go into her room, open her drawers, get all of her stuff, all of her clothes. They threw it all in trash bags and on blankets and towels and everything else that she owns, anything she owns. Her Keurig, I mean, things like that. Threw in the bags and they just put it in someplace else on campus. And she had to get back later and go weed through all of her stuff. I mean, she didn't get into a permanent room or a permanent temporary room until this past week. And then she's going to, and when they finish the dorm, she'll have to go back to her dorm. Listen, I know those are first world problems, okay? <laughs> but when you're learning to trust the Lord, those feel like a big deal. And she's working all afternoon, and she's got more homework than she's ever had. And she's trying to, you know, her, she's living out of her car. All of her stuff is piled in her car. You know, she was just unpacking stuff for the first time again recently. Stuff that had been in bags and wet. I mean, it's just... I mean, those, are, those feel big, don't they? And if I'm not careful, or if she's not careful, she might think, but God, I followed you. I'm in the land of promise. I'm right where I'm supposed to be, and nothing's going the way that I think it should go. I mean, there's got to be a mistake here. And we think that sometimes. If you move into a new phase of your life, you start to think, well, well you know, I, I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm following God. I'm obeying God. It's supposed to get better. I mean, I think about, you know, newly, newly married couples and, you know, you move into this new phase of life and for just a little bit, you think, wow, everything is perfect. And then, and then, you know, two days after the wedding, you realize it's not. <laughs> Maybe not that quick. Hopefully not that quick. But, you know, I mean, you, you got the honeymoon phase and then you get back to reality and you realize, oh, wait, just because I'm married doesn't mean I don't have to pay bills now. I mean, it doesn't mean that I don't have to go back to work and it doesn't mean that we're not going to have some financial struggles and it doesn't mean we don't have to adjust to each other and get used to living with each other and trying to figure, figure each other out. I mean, sometimes you're right where you're supposed to be, but it's not easy. Raising children and your children aren't exactly, you know, doing what you hope they're going to do and they're not obeying the right way or maybe they're not getting something at school or they're not behaving like they should. And you think, but God, wait a second. You promise, you're obligated to make life good and easy when we do right. Except God doesn't promise that. And Abram's in a position, he's in the land of promise, but he wasn't, he, and yet things were not going well. Rain wasn't following the plow. And just in case you think Abram's the only one to ever experience it, no, we do, but also it's full of people in the Bible that do this, that same thing happened to them. Listen, Job was not at fault for his trouble. 
You talk about somebody that was plowing. He was an upright man. And yet he, he faced things. I was just in my Bible reading in Job this morning. And I was imagining what he went through as a dad and a husband, as a man. I mean, he, rain does not always follow the plow. Noah was plowing and yet he still had to go through the flood. Joseph was plowing and he was doing right, but he, was, he wasn't betrayed by his brothers because he did wrong. He wasn't thrown in that pit. He wasn't, he wasn't lied about. He wasn't thrown in prison because he was wrong. Not, he was doing those things by somebody else's choice. Rain wasn't following the plow. David didn't flee from Saul for seven years because David had done wrong. Daniel didn't sit in a lion's den all night because, he, because of his own disobedience. No, what I'm trying to tell you this, this morning is the rain doesn't always follow the plow. Jesus Christ in the garden, he prayed and he didn't deserve a cross. And yet he ended up on a cross that's God's own son. Rain didn't even follow the plow for Jesus Christ. So for us to think that we can bypass the hardships of life simply because we're doing right, it's never worked that way before. It rains on the just and the unjust. And I know that's the opposite illustration, but it makes the same point. Rain doesn't fall, always follow the plow. You can plow and you can do right and you can obey and you can put in effort and you can even seek and worship God, but it does not exempt you from the natural trouble of living in a sin-cursed world. Famine doesn't always indicate that you're in the wrong either. There may be times that you are in the wrong and that spiritual dryness in your heart is because of your choices, but it doesn't always indicate that, nor does it indicate that God is wrong. And it's because you're facing difficulties. It doesn't mean God's no longer sovereign, nor does it mean that God is no, he no longer loves you. Famine happens because of this, because we live in a sin-cursed, fallen world. And just like the curse on the ground there in Genesis chapter 3, the effects of sin on our lives cannot be escaped even by the godliest of people. Listen, if godly people never had trouble, Jesus Christ would have not, not had to go to a cross. God's servants throughout the centuries that have done right, they would not have faced trouble, and yet they did. And I'm here to tell you, and I know this sounds discouraging to start, but famine happens. There will be times when your spiritual life is dry. When it seems like you've done everything you could and yet God's word just dries up and you can't get anything out of it and you're praying and your prayers seem to hit the ceiling and bounce right back on your head or when you sit and you listen to teaching and preaching and nothing seems to happen. Friends, we've all been there and I wish it wasn't the case, but it is. Famine can happen to any of us and it happens to all of us. And sometimes it's because of our choices. And I know that, but there are plenty of times when you face a famine not of your making. And in those times, you ought to be less concerned about the reason for the famine and be more concerned about your response to the famine. See, Abram in verse 10, it's, there says there was a famine in the land and Abram built an altar like he'd been doing and he trusted God. Is that what it says? No. It says that Abram went down into Egypt to sojourn there for the famine was grievous in the land. Now he's in the land of promise and yet the famine comes and he see the famine is here and he leaves the land of promise. And at first glance, folks, it may seem reasonable, especially if maybe Egypt's not dealing with the famine. 
I mean, maybe there's resources there that he can find. I mean, after all, Abram, as we've already read, has a large number of people depending on him. He's got cattle. He's got herds. He's got servants. He's got family. Um, Lot is with him. And there's a large number of people that are dependent on him for survival. But I want you to consider something missing from the text. Abram, to this point, has been a man of altars. He's been seeking God. He's been worshiping. He's been calling upon the name of the Lord. But do you see any, situ- any mention in these verses of Abram stopping and building another altar? Does he stop and seek the Lord? No, he responds by going to Egypt. See, be careful because our tendency is to seek answers to famines outside of God. And maybe we think, well, the famine is a mistake. Maybe I assume God's not in control. Or maybe I I, I think, well, maybe he doesn't love me or he's being unfair. Or maybe I think it's just easier for me to figure out for myself how to fix this problem. I'm self-dependent. And maybe it just seems simpler to seek a solution that I can see rather than wait on a solution that I can't see. And, you know, we do this a lot. We immediately run to uh, other people when we have a problem and we talk to other people about it rather than going to God first. Or we try to escape the famine. Many do this. Many try to escape the famine, the spiritual dryness in their lives um, through other means and resources. And they'll do it through bad decisions like alcohol. And I've seen this happen and, and you have too in people's lives and there's a dryness, there's an emptiness and they either want to forget about it or they want to fix it or cover it up and so they start substance abuse. And they find themselves addicted to substance abuse because there was a spiritual famine in their life and they didn't turn to God for the answers. If you're trusting in anything outside of God to fix the dryness in your life, you will not find the answers anywhere else. And all it leads to is anxiety and fear and guilt. And you cannot find the answers you're looking for. And yet God has them all the time. We just simply run somewhere else. We try to escape and find it somewhere else. But let me just remind you about Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart. And lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him and he shall direct thy paths. That promise is still in the Bible, folks. I mean, so listen, we, who better to take our burdens than the only one capable of carrying them? And yet we run with our burdens to Egypt trying to figure things out for ourselves. God is still in control of this. I mean, Abram, though, took it to Egypt. He fled the only help he had. And look at the effects of this bad decision. Look at verse 11. It says, and it came to pass when he was come near to enter into Egypt that he said unto Sarai, his wife, behold now, I know that thou art a fair woman to look upon. Therefore, it shall come to pass when the Egyptians shall see thee that they shall say, this is his wife and they will kill me, but they will save thee alive. Say, I pray thee, thou art my sister, that it may be well with me for thy sake and my soul shall live because of thee. Well, it sounds a little selfish, doesn't it? I mean, so when we leave God out of the solutions, it always leads to more bad decisions. Abram's first bad decision was leaving Canaan, the promised land, to go to Egypt. Egypt. But then he started having to tell lies in an effort to protect himself once he got there. And it just reminds me of this truth that compromise always comes in pairs. 
See, listen, you don't ever just make one bad choice and then that's it. No, if you make one bad choice, it always leads to more bad choices in order to cover up or fix the initial choice that you made. And I just want to talk to the kids about this a little bit in here. We've got some younger folks. Listen, every time you tell a lie to your parents, every single time, it's going to lead to another lie to try to cover up the lie you've already told. Compromise always comes in pairs. And see, most of the adults in this room, we've been there before. We know one bad decision leads to another bad decision, to another. And pretty soon it just snowballs out of control. But to the young people in this room today, I want to encourage you, stay away from the very first initial bad decision so you don't have to come in with more to try to cover up the initial bad decision that you made. One lie always leads to more. And we see that here with Abram. He's got a bad decision and he tries to cover it up with lies. And, and is, you know, it's interesting, you know, that, that Sarai, he knew that Sarai would be this, this desirable. Look at verse 14. And it came to pass that when Abram was coming to Egypt, the Egyptians beheld the woman that she was very fair. You know, the, the Hebrew, actually Hebrew language right there is... Um, the term hubba hubba. And they, that wasn't in my notes, by the way. Because it's also not true. Okay. That's my interpretation. You know, hubba hubba. Here comes Sarai. You know, Sarai was in her, at least in her mid-60s. Probably approaching 70. Yeah, sheesh. I don't know what that means. I'll interpret that one later. I'll have it for you tonight. She's in her mid-60s, almost 70, and yet she's so fair that Abram knows, listen, we better do something because as soon as they see you, they're going to want to, Pharaoh's going to want to have you for his wife. This must have been some looker, Sarai. She must have been something real special uh, for, for this to happen to her. Uh, and yet she's so beautiful. The Egyptians, they do commend her to Pharaoh. They get into Egypt and exactly what Abram is afraid of happens in that they get to Egypt. They find out or they think that, it, that Sarai is Abram's sister. And they say, Pharaoh, you've got to see this gal. And they take her to the palace and, and they're gonna, Pharaoh's going to marry her. You know, fortunately for Abram, even when we leave God out of our plans, he doesn't leave us out of his. He doesn't forget what he's promised. Even when we find ourselves digging a hole, we can't get out of. Look at verse 17. And the Lord plagued Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. And Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this that thou hast done unto me? Why dost thou not tell me that she was thy wife? Why sayest thou she is my sister? So I might have taken her to me to, my, to, me, to wife. Now therefore, behold thy wife, take her and go thy way. Get out of here. He commanded his men. Concerning Abram, they sent him away and his wife and all that he had. And I just want you to notice, Abram's bad decision didn't just affect Abram. It affected his wife Sarai, and then she ends up in the palace, and Pharaoh's going to marry her. It affects his nephew. We found out later Lot was with him. And you, you talk about seeds being planted. Here's Abram operating outside of faith. And what do we see Lot struggling with his whole life? To live by faith and obey God. 
And it just makes you wonder if he saw Uncle Abram doing all these things and it planted seeds in his life. No, even further, Abram's choice didn't just affect him and Sarai and Lot. It also affected the lost around him. I mean, Pharaoh and these, and these Egyptians, you know, he has an opportunity here to reveal God's righteousness and to introduce them to the one true God. Instead, by the end of it, because of his poor testimony, they're saying, just get out of here. Leave. You know, and that's the point of this could be this, this point, and so I'm going to say it, although I'm not focusing on it, is listen, your testimony as a child of God Listen, it could, be, it could ruin someone else's opportunity to receive Christ by faith in salvation depending on how you act every day. Your testimony could prevent somebody else from wanting what you have. The way that you talk, the way that you live, the other decisions that you're making, your obedience or your disobedience to God, it could affect somebody else. Here's Pharaoh and Egypt, and Abram had an opportunity to probably influence them for righteousness, and by the end of it, they're like, just get out of here. And I know that Pharaoh wasn't perfect. His intentions were not right. And yet Abram ruined an opportunity because of his lies and his decisions to cover things up. Here's Abram following the one true God, but because he tries to do things his own way, he loses his testimony before the lost. God's name is affected. Abram's ability to influence others is hindered. They tell him to leave. And listen, when we respond with our own plans, our testimony is at risk. As a child of God, you doing things your way instead of God's, it always backfires. Always. Not only does it leave God out of the process, but it replaces his ways for, for yours, and that's never better. This verse came to my mind this week, Proverbs 16, 9. A man's heart deviseth his way, but the Lord directeth his steps. See, the idea there is that we scheme, we devise. You ever been in this situation where you're trying to figure things out for yourself? A man's heart deviseth his way. And we're like, okay, how am I going to make this work? How am I going to scheme and twist it here and do this here and calculate this here? It says, though a man's heart deviseth his way. And yet, you know, we think that sounds good, except Jeremiah 17, 9 says, what does it say about a heart? It says the heart is what? Deceitful above all things and desperately what? Wicked. Who can know it? So for us to think that in our, in our own heart, we can come up and scheme and calculate a plan that will end up being any good at all when the source of our plans is a wicked and deceitful heart, who are we to think that our plans could ever touch God's? A man's heart deviseth his way, but the Lord directeth his steps. And there's a big contrast between deviseth and directeth. The word directeth means something established, something firm. So listen, you can scheme and you can plan and you can do things your own way. All you want to and it's fleeting. And yet God has a firm, established plan for you if you would simply submit to it. Listen, when you respond to famine with fear instead of faith, you'll experience failure every time. When you respond to famine with fear instead of faith, you'll experience failure every time. God's way is better every time. Our plans lead to disaster. So how do we avoid it? Well, notice what Abram did at the end that he should have done at the beginning. I'm going to read these verses again, 13, 1 through 4. And Abram went up out of Egypt 
he and his wife and all that he had. And Lot with him into the south. And Abram was very rich in cattle and silver and in gold. And he went on his journeys from the south even to Bethel. Under the place where his tent had been at the beginning. Between Bethel and Hai. Under the place of the altar. Which he had made there at the first. And there Abram called on the name of the Lord. You know where Abram went? He went back to Bethel. He went back to the place. Look at chapter 12 verse 8. Says, this is the place he went at the beginning. And 12 8, he removed from thence unto a mountain on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent, having Bethel on the west and Hai on the east. And there he built an altar unto the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. Do you remember when he first came into Canaan from last week? He first came into Canaan and he saw the Canaanites and he saw the pagan worshipers. And he didn't just immediately run away in fear. No, he stopped and he built an altar before God. He worshiped God, even though it wasn't exactly what he was expecting. And now after he's tried his own way and it backfired and blew up in his face, he goes right back to where he was at the beginning, right back to Bethel, right back to the altar. And he says, no, I've got to get back on my knees, on my face before God and seek God once again, because my way ended in disaster. But when I'm right where I'm supposed to be with God, his way is always best. See, when we're faced with a famine... Fleeing in fear will bring you failure. But focusing on the Father will build your faith. I know it's a lot of F's. But I'm going to say it again. When when faced with a famine, fleeing in fear will bring you failure. But focusing on the Father will build your faith. See, listen, Abram failed miserably. He was fooled by the famine into thinking he could find solutions outside of God. He he allowed fear to overcome his faith and it led to failure. But there are some important things that I want to learn from this low point in Abram's life. Three truths to learn from Abram's failure. And you can, I mean, these could help if you write them down. If not, just listen close. First, rain doesn't always follow the plow. See, if we would get this truth today, I think it could be a great help. Because famines come. Difficulties happen. Trouble comes. Even to a child of God who's where they're supposed to be. And what messes with us is when we we assume we can avoid it by fixing the problem ourselves. See, sometimes there's no obvious fix. Sometimes there's no clear way out. There's no shiny solution with angels singing. You know, if you are where you're supposed to be and famine comes, stay there. Don't try to escape it. See, you may, you may be trying to avoid the trial, but your best protection is right there next to the altar. Amen. See, I mean, it's kind of like, again, in Oklahoma, um, it's tornado country, and we've had tornadoes here too. And our first fall here, I'm like, Lord, what are you trying to do? Yeah, there's oh, oh, tornadoes in Oklahoma. We get here, there's tornadoes here. Uh, you know, they have these things, they call them Frady holes. It's a, it's a storm shelter. Okay, yeah, we're very simple down in Oklahoma, Frady holes. So you get down in your hole and it protects you. You know, so if there's a storm coming, there's a tornado bearing down on your house. You know, it would be silly for you to say, if you're in that storm shelter, the safest place you can be, it would be silly for you to say, okay, there's a tornado and it's almost here. Let's get out of here and try to outrun the storm. No, your best spot 
Your safest place is right there in that storm shelter. You'd be silly to get out of it in that moment. And yet that's what a lot of God's people do when a trial comes their way. They think, i got to do whatever I can to get out of here. And yet right there is your shelter. And he hides you under his wings. And for you to think, well, I can out, outrun the storm and leave God behind. You're safer right next to the Father. He's the only one who can fix the storm. So for us to think we can outrun the storm and we get out and we say, well, rain doesn't follow the plow, so I've got to do something about it. No, listen, rain may not follow the plow, but there is one who controls the rain. And I want to tell you, stay right next to him. Don't get out of the shelter and run because God has you there for a purpose and he wants to prove himself to you in the middle of the famine. So first, rain doesn't follow the plow, but second, if you failed, go back to the beginning. See, Abram blew it. The whole scenario should have never taken place, but notice his, his response to his initial bad response. He didn't throw in the towel and walk away. See, he went back to the beginning. He went back to Bethel. He went back to the, where he was when things were best, right there back at the altar. See, listen, some people run away twice, meaning they leave their proximity to God when the famine comes, and they think, well, I'm going to find the answer, answer somewhere else. And then they realize that the answers aren't where they're looking. There's not answers there. And so rather than return back to where the answers were, they go from that point and they run somewhere else. They run away twice. And listen, if God has brought you to the point and you have sought answers in Egypt and you're trying to fix your problems outside of God and it's not working, the worst decision you could make at that point is to leave that point and go somewhere else further away from God to find answers. Now, in that moment, if you are where you are and you've come to the place where you know this is not the answer, I don't have the happiness, I don't have the contentment, this is not what I needed, then from that point on, don't go further from God. Turn around and go right back to Bethel. His word still has the answers. I mean, God hasn't moved. I mean, he's still giving you a church, a local church that loves you and wants to help you. The only place you'll fill that void of dry, dusty famine is back in the land of promise. The altar represents your relationship with God. And you may not be able to fix the famine, but you can stay close to the one who can. So third, you don't have to fail the famine. Back to the very beginning of Abram, when this situation happened, listen, that burden on your shoulders, it feels too heavy to bear because it is. And if you don't allow the Father to help you carry it, you will run. You will flee. But listen, it doesn't have to crush you. The dry season, friends, it's just a season. The difficulty, it has an ending. That trial, it will one day cease. And it may not make sense, but stay put. It may not feel like the right thing to do. And maybe in your mind, the natural thing to do is just get up and run. Get up and get out of here. No, stay next to the altar. Stay in the storm shelter. Friends, stay in the boat. Stay next to God. The famine rages and you don't see an end and the spiritual dryness feels overwhelming, but that's the worst time to leave the Father. He's the only one with the answers to the spiritual famine in your life. You stay right there. You let him provide for you in the famine rather than seek a way to escape it and miss the chance to learn just how great a God he is.
Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. There's one verse here that I, I turn to a, a lot when, when I have something in my life that is a trial, it's a burden, it's, a, it's a, a disruption, and it feels like a famine. There's one verse in 1 Corinthians 10, 13 that really helps me, and I think it can help you too. Most of you in here are probably aware of this verse. It says in 10, 13, There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man, but God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape, that ye may be able to bear it. Listen, I want to replace the word temptation with famine. Listen, there's no famine taking you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will, with, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the famine also make a way to escape, that ye may be able to bear it. And listen, I don't know what you're dealing with in your life. I don't know what you've brought in here this morning. But God has you in that place because he wants to prove his faithfulness. And you may think, I've got to get out of here, but there's no famine that God has you in that he won't give you the grace to survive. Listen, where he promises, he provides. Where his grace cannot take you, where it won't keep you. And I'm just here to say there's no famine too big for God's faithfulness. There's no spiritual drought too dry for him to sustain you. And listen, there's no financial hole too deep for him to reach the bottom. There's no sin too strong for him to free you from. There's no root of bitterness so entangled that he can't yank you out. There's no relationship too broken for him to restore. There's no soul too lost for God to reach. There's no difficulty that God's power can't fix. And here's the mindset we all need when it comes to difficulties. Stop looking for ways to escape the famine. Look for ways to embrace God's faithfulness. See, when faced with a famine, fleeing in fear will bring you failure. But focusing on the Father's faithfulness will build your faith. When faced with a famine, fleeing in fear will, will cause failure, but focusing on the Father's faithfulness will build your faith. The famine isn't there to destroy you. It's there to get you to stop looking around and start looking up. Stop running to Egypt when trouble comes. The world has no answers for your problems. All the psychobabble and self-help, it sounds great until you realize it doesn't provide answers. So stop, go back to the altar, look up, open God's word, and realize it addresses all of our greatest problems. Abram failed at first, but he came back. Maybe God help us skip the failure and just focus on God's faithfulness in the famine. You know, it's interesting... They say about 400,000 migrants in total from all the, mid, the states here in the middle of the country. About 400,000 fled west during the, bus, the Dust Bowl from every state. 
And most of them soon found out that life wasn't even better. See, friend, don't let the famine convince you that you need a different answer. The only answer you need is your Heavenly Father, and He knows right where you are. He sees the difficulty. He's already directing your steps. So I'm just going to say this today. Stay put. Let Him prove His faithfulness. Stay as close as you can, and then watch Him provide every single time. Let's stand together. Every head bowed. Every eye closed. I don't know what famine you're facing in your life but it doesn't have to end you. It doesn't have to be the end of you. It could actually be just the God wanting to get you to the point where you stop looking around and you start looking up. Stop focusing on the famine and focus on God's faithfulness. He has every answer to your greatest questions. But sometimes we get so focused on the circumstance that we forget the person who can oversee and deal with every single thing we face. So whether it's a financial need in your life, it may feel like a famine, but God is faithful. If it's a spiritual need in your life, you've got sin in your life and you can't seem to get over it, listen, it may feel like it's unbeatable, but God is faithful. He does have a way for you to escape that you may be able to bear it. And maybe it's a relationship that's completely broken and you don't see a way out. Listen, God is faithful. He has a way for you to escape and bear it. And maybe it's some problem at work or it's some problem at home or it's some problem with a vehicle. I don't, I mean, all of these things. It's a problem with one of your children. God is faithful. The famine doesn't have to be your end. It could just be that God wants you in the famine to look up. Heavenly Father, thank you for the truth. I pray that you would speak through it to our hearts. God, we humble ourselves and ask you that you would do something special in us. Lord, change us, transform us, and help us to stop looking around at the famine and start looking up at our Father who is faithful. God, help us to see that our way is never better and yours is always best. Have your will and way in this, sermon, in this message, this invitation this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. As the instrument plays, I want to encourage you, if God has spoken to you, why don't you take a moment to respond this morning. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com.